I don't know if you've ever been to Italy. I don't know if you've ever been to Rome. If you have gone to Rome, you need to go to a place called the Colosseum. I, uh, I, I went there a number of years ago, and we were cruising around Italy and, and around Rome and visiting a few different places there. And, and when we got to Rome, uh, friends that were there just said that we had to make sure we went there, make, made sure that we go see the Colosseum. So when we did go see the Colosseum and we started to kind of come up to it, I think the first thing that struck me so strongly uh, was just the size of it. I mean, the Colosseum is massive. It is this uh, ancient uh, ancient arena, really, and it's got columns and it, it's got the, it's just huge and it goes up high and and not only is it massive, but it's intricate. Uh, so many like intricate carvings and lines and shapes that are built into this building. And um, I guess one of my first thoughts was just that I, I just couldn't believe that uh, that something so incredible had been built so long ago, right? In in the Roman Empire, this incredible empire that at one stage kind of ruled the known world. But it wasn't only. It wasn't only the size of the Colosseum and even the look of the Colosseum that was so impressive. It was also the history of the Colosseum because the more we learned about the Colosseum as we were going through a tour of this building, um, the more I started to realize that this Colosseum, it was used really as an entertainment theater to keep the masses kind of appeased. And they were, this is where they would have the gladiator. Are you not entertained? Did, I, did you love that movie? If you haven't seen the gladiator, that's a whole other thing, but you need to go watch it. And, um, and I was amazed by the, the story of the Colosseum. One of the things that fascinated me about the Colosseum was that there was, a, there was this guy, Nero, uh, at his garden parties, he would actually use Christians as human torches or bonfires to light up his garden. Um, and then what would also happen is they would capture Christians or arrest them, and then they would sew these Christians into animal skins, and then they would catapult the Christians over the walls of the Colosseum into its central arena where there would be like lions and tigers and bears waiting to eat. So there was a time in Rome where Christians were just incredibly persecuted. And this Colosseum, uh, as much as it's this incredible testament to history and an incredible kind of remnant from the past, it's also a testament to Christian persecution. Which is why it's interesting that when you walk through the Colosseum, what you're going to see if you ever get to go there is that you'll find like rubble and you'll find rocks and you'll see things that are falling apart a little bit. And then you'll see all this kind of massive work that's been that's taken place to try and restore the Colosseum and keep it alive. And there standing in the midst of all the rubble is this massive cross, a Christian cross. Uh, almost as it's, it seems as if it's, to me at least, and I could be reading too much into it, but for me it was just such a powerful picture of, uh, it's almost defiant in its nature, right? Because there was this time uh, many, many, many years ago when the Roman Empire really was the dominant force of the known world at that time. At that stage, all roads really did lead to Rome. And there was a saying that the Roman Empire was so massive that the sun never set on it, right? Um and, and at that same time, there was this little sect of people, followers of Jesus, who were massively persecuted by this incredibly powerful empire. And those followers of Jesus, they didn't have any real power in and of themselves. They were weak and, and vulnerable, and many of them died, and many of them were catapulted over those Colosseum walls, right? And yet, all these years later, 
that cross in the middle of that Colosseum that needs to be uh, hard worked on in order to still be around today, the cross is still standing. The cross is still there. So long after the Roman Empire in all its glory has come and gone, the people of Jesus remain. And when I look at that cross, it makes me ask another question. Just why we have a cross, right? What, what is it about that cross that's so uh, powerful, so sustaining? What was it about that cross and what message does that cross carry that was enough to put the kind of fire inside a group of people who would move from a persecuted minority to inside of 100 years having a real power in the midst of Roman occupation, and then 2,000 years later still being here. And then some of those ideologies and some of the worldviews that Jesus instilled into those early faithful few would then trickle out and begin to inform the way we run entire societies. Human rights, this idea that all people are equal, that all people have value, that's a Jesus idea, right? And um, society gets built on these things. And, and I just wonder what is it? that's built into the symbol that seems to be standing there in defiance of the empires that have tried to overthrow it. What's built into that symbol um, that's so powerful that it's caused the, the followers of Jesus to still be here all these years later. That's what we want to talk about today. We want to talk about the power of the cross and the day that death died. Who is Jesus? What is he doing? And what does it mean to follow him in the world today? My name is Matt Lewis. This is the Follower Podcast. And everyone is invited to the conversation. Now, if uh, you listened to last week's episode, you may feel like maybe there's a bit of conflict here, right? Because last week, Matt, you, you spoke about how the gospel is Jesus, right? And not the things of Jesus. Um, and now we want to talk about the cross. And I just want to say that, uh, don't hear what I'm not saying. We have to maintain right tension here. Uh, N.T. Wright, actually, he talks about this idea of we can fall into one of two extremes. We can have a cross without a kingdom or a kingdom without a cross right? Uh, the cross without the kingdom is where Jesus just becomes transactional, and the goal of Jesus is, is just to have some kind of belief, and it turns into some kind of superstitious mantra that ultimately gets us uh, an insurance policy when we die so that we can go to heaven. And that's what I was counteracting last week, uh, to say that at a base level, our foundational belief must be Jesus. Our fascination as people who claim to be followers of Jesus must be He Himself, the person, Right, But we mustn't move to the other extreme where we end up having a kingdom without a cross okay, and, and where we remove the supernatural and powerful nature of what Jesus has actually done. And then Jesus essentially just becomes uh, a part of like what, what's called a social gospel where it's really just about doing humanitarian work and philanthropy stuff and being good people. Jesus becomes purely philosophical and purely moral and and, and purely just about fixing us up today. And, and Paul actually speaks quite strongly against that. He says, you know, if, if our salvation is only salvation for this life and not for the next, then, uh, then we're pitiful people, right? We, our faith isn't actually worth much. And so all I, I wanted to do last week was to make sure that our foundation was right, that our gaze was on Christ himself, on the person of Jesus, right? So if you had to ask me, what is the gospel? In one word, it's Jesus, Okay, and if you want an expansion of that, if you want me to, to clarify what I mean by that, then we've got to go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
We've got to look at the gospel from four angles and pack who this person is into our lives. And, and not just one part of who he is, but actually all of who he is, because he himself is the gospel. But if you're looking for something in the middle, sort of a, a moderate retelling of what we call the apostolic tradition or the original gospel, one of the good places to go is a passage in 1 Corinthians 15. It's um, the earliest recording of what's called the apostolic tradition or that original good news that was handed down from one apostle to the next, right? And Paul writes it down for us. And what's interesting, as we read it now, this is going to kind of be the framework for our episodes going forward as we round up the series, is that um, it is very focused on the crucifixion and it is very focused on uh, the resurrection, right? Uh, And there's a lot of powerful stuff that's unpacked here. But what I would want you to notice, even as we read this, is that its emphasis is still Christ. In other words, the gospel, if you want the fancy language for it, the gospel is a Christology, right? Its focus, its emphasis is the person of Jesus. And I think where we've gone wrong is we've moved away from a robust Christology and we've moved to some kind of transactional doctrine that's primarily human focused in its nature. Okay, so so our gospel doesn't always amplify Jesus. A lot of the time our gospel primarily pacifies us. And that's kind of the tension that we really want to wrestle into. So even when, in this apostolic tradition, this original gospel that we find in Corinthians, even when it's unpacking the gospel in terms of crucifixion, in terms of resurrection, in terms of these powerful things that we're going to talk about, it still does so in a way where Jesus is centralized, where his nature is amplified, where his person is glorified, okay? And that obviously then has implications for our lives. Uh, It does... Uh, hit on issues of sin and death and resurrection and king, all these things that we enter into. And there's a wonderful gift of transaction that happens in Jesus. But Jesus is still central, okay? And that's always the thing we have to guard against, is that in our popular culture, it's just too easy to make Jesus all about us instead of making Jesus all about Jesus. So with all that said, let's get into 1 Corinthians. Paul is writing to this church in Corinth, and and these are his words. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you. So there it is. What is Paul talking about here? He's talking about a gospel that he preached to this church in Corinth. And it's a gospel which they received, which you received, and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. This is a powerful thing. Paul is saying, I want to remind you of a gospel, a good news that I preached to you. And what did you do with this gospel? You received it, you stood in it, and by holding fast to it, you were rescued, you were saved out of your mess, right? Um, We live in an age and in a time when we are tempted and even guilty of forgetting that good news which rescued us at first, okay? That good news which we received at first. which we, And then we're, we're tempted to not hold on to it. We're tempted to not stand in it, not hold fast to it. And what Paul's saying here is actually that the saving happens in that process. The saving happens as we stand fast and hold to this idea. It is this idea, this core crux issue that kind of hinges of the person of Jesus that leads us into this fullness of life that he's talking about, right? 
And uh, he goes on to say in verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received. This is very important because what Paul's saying here is that what he's handing over to these guys, what he's delivering to them as first importance is not something that he made up himself. This isn't a, a product of his preference or fancy. And that's incredibly significant because Paul actually did have quite a unique revelation of the gospel as it pertains to the Jews and the Gentiles and how we're grafted in and this miracle that's been hidden for ages that has now been revealed to him. Um, so, so Paul did have sort of a, a specialized gospel within the gospel, but in this moment as he's handing over what's of first importance, it's as if he just sets that aside for a second and says, let's go back to the ancient tradition. Let's go back to the to the foundation. Let's go back to the first thing that was handed down to me, and now I'm handing it down to you. And I would say as Christian people, like we may have a revelation. That's a wonderful thing. Like your eyes may be being opened to wonderful and new ideas, and and I think that's good and true and right. And we even spoke about that as we follow Jesus. Um, the windows of our minds need to be opened wider progressively to the truths of God, and I think that is true. But I, I think there's a caution there to say that as we journey forward, we can't journey forward beyond the foundation of what actually got us here in the first place, right? There is a truth that's been handed down to us and which we are responsible to hand down to others. And even as we grow in wisdom and even as we grow in understanding, I think it's Tim Keller who says it, we never grow out of the gospel, right? We never grow out of these base elements, these base truths that have implication for our lives. And what are these base truths? What is the thing that was handed down to Paul, which Paul now hands down to us? He says this, um, I delivered to you as first importance what I received, and this is what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Caiaphas and then to the Twelve, and then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, right? Uh, th there is this idea what Paul is talking about here is that this core message of who Jesus is, at first that Jesus himself is the message, and then that there is a hinge point within the life of Jesus that is really important, and uh, that it is focused not, not, and this is important, not in an overemphasized way on only his death, right? As we start to see this gospel, we see that, yes, that death is an important thing, but then it expands beyond that. There's a resurrection, right? There's a burial. There's an appearance. And so again and again and again, we come back to this idea that the gospel is not just you and your sin and your Savior. The gospel is the story of Jesus, and the story of Jesus can only really be understood as the consummation of the story of Israel, and the story of Israel is all about humanity. This is why we said right in the beginning, the gospel is not a Christian issue, it's a human issue, okay? It's about the redemption of all things under Christ. This is a big, huge, expansive idea. It has implication and weight for your life. It impacts you in every way, and if we want to enter into it, we need to understand that this is not just about some kind of compartmentalized, transactional idea. It's about everything that we are and everything that we will be. And it has supernatural emphasis for us right now, right here today in our lives. And so let's start with this first one in terms of uh, the death that's in the family, right? 
the day that death died. It, it says here that the gospel that Paul's handing down to us starts with the declaration that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Christ um, is not the surname of Jesus. <laughs> it's such an important idea to understand. Christ is not the surname of Jesus, right? Uh, Yeshua, Mashiach, Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ. Um, Christ is actually a, a defining title that tells us who Jesus is, what he's about, what he's here to do. And this Christ, this, um, this pre-existent word, it's, it is the expectation of a, a, a Messiah that would come and deliver a people out of their bondage and out of their slavery and out of their brokenness, right? And so when Paul's talking about the fact that Christ has died, he's not talking about Jesus with blue eyes and blonde hair with a peace sign. Um, that we often think about, like Jesus Christ, as in Matthew Lewis, right? He's talking about an eternal expectation. And actually, the stark and sobering declaration of the gospel, what shook people, is that this eternal, powerful expect expectation came in a person, the Jesus, and then that this eternal, powerful expectation died, Right? Right there, in that idea that God died, if we just spend time unpacking that idea, we would understand how scandalous it is. Nobody expected God to die. In fact, part of the reason why many Jewish people are not Christian today is because their expectation of the Christ was that he would be a powerful ruler just like other powerful rulers. When Jesus comes into the earth and he's cruising around in the world for the three years that he's there uh, ministering, again and again and again, there seems to be this push from the people to enthrone him and crown him in the same way that other kings are enthroned and crowned. They, they want to make him king. There is even that time when Jesus is surrounded by the crowds and it says that they want to make him king. And because they wanted to make him king, he removes himself from the crowd. He escapes that idea. Okay, again and again and again, the emphasis of the people following Jesus is this idea of upward mobility. If you get on the throne, then we will be in power. It's when Jesus is walking down the street and his two followers come to him and they say, when you're in your glory, who's going to be on your left? Who's going to be on your right? Who's going to rule and reign with you? And what does Jesus say? He says, you don't understand. Maybe in your world, you use power to lord it over people. But in our world, in this new kingdom, in this new reality, in in the world of the, that the Christ has come to bring, it just doesn't work like that. In our world, those who have the greatest power, they actually become the least. The first become the least. The greatest become the smallest. Actually, weakness is the medium of change. And so there is this, there's this radical thing where, where the Christ, who people expected to be almost in some ways this militant liberator, he dies. <laughs> and you can imagine what this would have looked like, right? If you are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you're, you're the disciples who are cruising around with Jesus for these three years, think about this. Some guy came along and told you that he is the long-awaited Messiah to come and rescue Israel. You say yes to following him, and you give up your whole life to do that. You're, you're coming out of a small-town context where everybody knows your name, and now you're following this Mashiach around everywhere. Uh, what are people starting to think? 
A lot of people must just think you're insane. If you're you're Peter, you left the family business. If you're Matthew, you left a lucrative tax collecting career, right? Um, And and now you've followed this Jesus. He's gaining steam. He's gaining momentum. And maybe there's a part of you that's like, yeah, yeah, I told you. You see, he is who he says he is. And he's healing people. And there's a movement that's gathering around him. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he does. He's assassinated. Imagine what happens. No wonder they all scattered, right, at the arresting in the Garden of Gethsemane. No wonder they all ran away. And even Peter, who was there watching from a distance, denies Jesus. Why? Because surely this isn't the way it goes, God. Surely this isn't the way that kings win victory. Yes? Only John standing there at the end at the foot of the cross. And what would have happened in their minds there is Jesus breathes his last Yes, he screams out, it is finished. But what is finished? How is it finished? See, they're not looking at the story retrospectively. They don't have 2,000 years of hindsight to give them perspective. They're in the middle of the chaos. There is bleeding and screaming and crying. And there is an army of Rome who's killing their Messiah. And as far as they can see, he's dead. This is not how kings reign. This is not how kings rule. This is not how victories are won. And yet this Christ... His vehicle of transformation starts with a death. And why did he die? It says here um, that this Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. What is sin? Is sin only moral? Is sin only the bad things that you do? If that's what we think it is, then it's no wonder that our churches become places of of moral correction rather than supernatural transformation. I'm always reminded of Jesus who talks about, um, particularly in Matthew 5, 6, um, and 7 there. And he's saying, you know, you've heard it said that, if you, that you shouldn't murder, but I'm telling you that even if you hate, you've already murdered. And you've heard it said that you shouldn't commit adultery, but I'm telling you that even if you lust, you've already committed adultery, Right? And what is Jesus doing? He's helping us see that actually the, the promise of the kingdom, the gift of salvation, what he's here to do, goes far deeper than just moral correction. This is not about just becoming better people. Okay, the church is not a self-help program. This is not a counseling course. All those things are part of it. Those are tools and vehicles, perhaps. But the goal of the gospel was to hit sin. And what is sin? Well, sin is death. <laughs> It's not badness, right? It's, uh, Jesus didn't come to make good people, uh, bad people good. Jesus came to help dead people live, to which you might say, well, I feel pretty alive, Matt. You know, I don't, I don't feel dead. I, as far as I know, I woke up this morning with a pulse. And I would say, yeah, but is, is the only part of who you are flesh and blood? Is the only thing by which you determine life the fact that your heart is still beating? What do you do with the ache? What do you do with your sense of dislocation that makes you feel like there's something more to you than what you can see and touch and taste and hear? And that that thing is not alive. Right? So you may be walking around as an operating shell, but you know that inside is an emptiness and that that shell, it's fragile because it's got nothing filling it from the inside. It is this idea that we are not primarily physical beings having a spiritual experience, but we are primarily spiritual beings having a physical experience. That actually what defines us is an eternity inside of us. And that somehow in our insistence on 
being our own gods. Uh, we have chosen a posture of being that dislocates us from our original intention and causes a kind of death that starts on the inside and works its way out to everywhere else we go. What, what are wars? What is murder? What is rape? What are some of the worst expressions of our humanity? Are they not just products of an internal world that's been bubbling up from the inside for a long time? And isn't that sin? And, and how are you going to get there? How are you going to heal that? See, if Jesus is really going to be Jesus, then if the Christ is really going to be the Christ, if there really is something eternal about this God, uh, then he's got to offer something more than what our earthly systems can. If the only thing that the church can offer, if the only good news of the gospel is um, moral reform, then actually I can get that from a counselor, a psychologist, and some good medication. Connor, right? So, so then if Jesus is really to be Jesus, if he really is unique and essential, as he says he is, for all people at all places and all times, then he must be offering something that nobody else can offer. He must offer a kind of life that nobody else can give. He must be here to bring remedy to a sickness that nobody else can really diagnose nor cure. The death of sin must go far deeper than our bad habits. Can you see it? And so when we just box sin as purely moral, uh, when we just think this is about the fact that we're bad people and then our badness made God really angry with us, and now we have to believe in Jesus conceptually so that somehow uh, there can be a forgiveness for our badness and then we can get to heaven one day. That is, uh, that's a superficial understanding of the gospel, right? It's not what it is. I would actually, in fact, say that our saving is probably better understood as our rehumaning. <laughs> because why? Because the gospel is not a Christian issue. It's a human issue. Okay? So you're not saved to be a Christian. You're not rescued from the thing that's dead inside of you in order to be a Christian, in order to join a tribe, in order to be a part of an organization. You're, you're called to be a part of a people. Absolutely. This is a communal narrative, definitely. But the, the defining element of those, that community is that it's human. Right? What do I mean by human? Well, if you go back to the garden, God created man and woman in his image, imago Dei. Okay, so what is human? And we spoke about this. Well, human is divine. So what is sin? It's the dislocation from your d divinity. And then what are sins? Sins are the outworking of the sin. Sins are the actions that result from the death. There's been a death to your true self, and you've accepted a substandard way of living that has been conformed to the world's level of immaturity. And then what does Jesus say in the, in the Gospels? He says, um, so if, if the light in you is darkness, then how deep is the darkness? Yeah, that's a powerful thought, right? So if the best we can hope for is simply the absence of adultery, but we don't hold out expectation that we could really be healed from lust, then the thing that we consider to be light is actually still darkness. And if the thing that we think is light is darkness, then how deep is the stuff that's darkness? Yes. If the best thing that we can say about ourselves as a community is that we don't kill one another, if that's what we're willing to advertise, then how deep is the darkness that we're not willing to advertise? 
right? And what Jesus says is, guys, I want to move you way beyond legislation. I want to move you way beyond just not killing each other, way beyond spiritualities defined by prohibition. I actually want to lead you to a place where you not only don't kill each other, you don't hate each other. Wow. That's a powerful thing. That's a powerful thing. And this Jesus, he's not a figment of our imagination. A lot of people say to me, well, it's the same as the tooth fairy, right, or the Easter bunny, and so do I need faith to believe in those things? But what's critical in this verse that we're looking at here is that it says um, that this Christ died for our sins, for our deadness, and he did so in accordance with the scriptures. In other words, at this time when this was written, we didn't have a Bible, right, because <laughs> they're busy writing it. So what are the scriptures that it's in accordance with? It's in accordance with the Torah. It's in accordance with an ancient tradition that's been pointing forward to the person of Jesus. It's the Isaiahs of this world and the Jeremiahs of this world. And even before that, from day one in the garden, in the beginning, God said the word, John 1, God is, who is this word? This word is Jesus. And everything was created through him, for him, by him. It's this idea that before the foundation of the earth, the lamb was slain. In other words, there is this eternal expectation that this moment is an exclamation mark in all of human history where something happens that goes way beyond our expectation. And it's not just a figment of people's imagination or even a cultural construct of that particular time. No, no, no. It is buried into human history for thousands of years. And Jesus comes as the, as the realization of that expectation. And in that day when he dies, that cross that stands now still in the Roman Colosseum, that people wear around their necks and tattoo on their arms and actually have very little understanding of what it actually means. Something happened there. It was a transaction, right? Somehow, and this is the supernatural part of it, right? And we've got to be careful again. I think we said it already that we don't over-rationalize our God. Okay, yes, we must, we must love our God with our whole mind, but in order for God to be God, He's got to be, well, God's got to be beyond our understanding, right? If I can conceptualize God completely, if I can put God in a test tube and pull Him apart, well, then I'm God. God's not God, right? And so in order for God to be God, He must be supernormative, beyond the norm, beyond our understanding. And so absolutely, at the cross, something supernatural happened. I don't know what it is, but the spirit that is me somehow was able to come alive. But not only that, not only was there this transaction of identity that happened somehow in friendship with Jesus, and I now get access to the eternity that I was made for, but even more than that, there's a wisdom that was extracted from that cross. That cross itself is a, it is a sacrament, right? It's a parable. It's, a, it's performance theater that in and of itself carries a message. And it's Jesus saying that unless a single grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. It's Jesus coming against the popular ideas of our world and indeed the, the idea that dislocated us from our humanity in the first place, which is that we should prefer ourselves over God, prefer ourselves over, the, over others, that the idea is to get what the eyes find pleasing and what the appetite finds tempting. And we must do so even at the cost of disobedience to our created purpose. And Jesus says, actually, no, 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 no. The way to life is death. <laughs> See, the day that death died is also the day that death was repurposed. 
And so Jesus didn't die so that we don't have to. He died to show us how. All, all of us, right? And this is what Jesus says. He says, if you want to come after, you must take up your cross. Okay? So the Christian life is cruciform. It, it looks like an ongoing death. Why? Because that's exactly the narrative. Jesus is, in Philippians, being in very nature God, he set that aside. He didn't, in setting things aside, he didn't set aside his God nature. It was his God nature to set things aside. In other words, our God is a servant, right? And because he set those things aside, then he was elevated to the highest place. Life comes from death. It's the, I don't know how to explain it. You can't get to the resurrection unless you go through a crucifixion. And so many of us are resisting the crucifixion and we're afraid of death. And so we live our lives trying to avoid, avoid pain and hardship and lack and loss. And we don't listen to Jesus when he said we should actually prefer other people over ourselves. We should become the servant of all. That the Christian gospel is a narrative of downward mobility. Right, And so we're still afraid of death. We're scared of it. We build our whole lives to insulate ourselves from it instead of realizing that actually it is the vehicle of our liberation. So the day that death died is the day that it lost its sting. The day that it repurposed itself. Jesus is so incredibly brilliant because death was the product of sin. Right? And now he gets into that death and he uses it as the very vehicle to bring us out of that sin. Wow. Wow. And so I'm moving from this eternity to the next eternity, this side of eternity to the other side. It becomes a falling asleep more than it becomes a death. We're not afraid anymore. There's not a fear around this. And, and we're not afraid of our suffering and we're not afraid of, of the fact that we would be unknown or that we wouldn't become popular or we wouldn't be first or we wouldn't be at the top or we wouldn't get promoted or we wouldn't get, we wouldn't get the big name on the door or the corner office because our ambition is no longer to avoid the cross. We understand that actually we embrace the cross, that as Jesus people, just like our Jesus, um, we, we say yes to death. And is this hard for us? Absolutely, it's hard for us. Just like Jesus, we find ourselves in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, is there any other way, God? Um, and I think God says, no, no, there's no other way. This is how it works. You enter into your death and then, and then you find your life. And so there's, in some ways, there are two sides to this cross. Uh, on the one hand, the cross, this death in the family because of who did the dying. See, again, remember, Jesus wasn't unique in crucifixion. Many people had been crucified, thousands, in fact. He wasn't even unique in his declaration to be Messiah. Many people had declared that they were Messiah, and many people after him declared that they were Messiah. He was unique because he was Messiah. <laughs> and his resurrection was unique, not because he died, but because of who it was that did the dying. And somehow on one side of this cross, there is a supernatural reality whereby all the death of the world, every broken thing, every darkness, every wayward thought, every rebellious action, everything that we would call sin, all of our dislocated humanity found its way to Christ in that moment. And he absorbed it. He took it for himself. And honestly, I, I, I could not sum up in a podcast or a lifetime what actually happened there, mostly because if I'm honest, I don't understand. <laughs> and that's why without faith, it's just impossible. 
to please God. But on the other side of the cross, beyond the supernatural, uh, there is a wisdom that can be pulled into our lives. And actually, this wisdom is profoundly supernatural because many of us miss this and, and many of us resist it, which is that um, at the cross, death died. And we don't have to be afraid of it anymore. We don't have to insulate our lives from suffering and hardship and difficulty. We don't want to pursue those things. We're not ascetic in our mindset. We don't want to wear sackcloth and whip ourselves and purposefully choose hardship. No, 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 no. But we just know that, uh, these, that life is, is two parts, joy and suffering. And actually, it's Khalil Gibran who says, you know, these things are in friendship and the same hollow that suffering carves is the hollow into which joy flows, right? And so um, hardship is inevitable, suffering is inevitable, but not only that, for the Christian, uh, self-denial is important, right? Deny yourself <laughs> and follow me. If you're not willing to die, it's going to be hard for you to live. And luckily at the cross, death died. Right? So when we choose death, when we embrace it, when we say, yes, we will be willing to live a life of downward mobility. We will become less so other people can become more. We will become servants of men, taking off our robes, putting a towel around our waist and serving other people. We will say yes to the death that our Jesus modeled. Radically and supernaturally, Jesus enters into the very vehicle that the devil intended to destroy us. And he repurposes it to save us. It is through our death that we find our resurrection just like Jesus because he is the first fruit. He is the first among many sons. And so his invitation, as hard as it is, and it is hard, um, but it is beautiful, is that we would trust him. And that we would say, oh, your will be done, not mine. Um, and that we would find ourselves to our liberating deaths because death, my friends, has died. There, there is nothing to fear anymore. It's lost its sting. There is no boasting. Uh, what is left now is Christ.